0: So we'd like you to keep your promise to us, if you please, sir. Not so fast. Not so fast! I'll have to give the matter a little thought. Go away and come back tomorrow. Tomorrow? Oh, but I want to go home now. You've had plenty of time already. Yeah. Do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz. I said come back tomorrow. If you are really great and powerful, you'd keep your promises. Do you presume to criticize the great Oz? You ungrateful creatures think yourselves lucky that I'm giving you audience tomorrow instead of 20 years from now. Oh. The great Oz has spoken. Oh. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. I am the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. You are? Uh, I don't believe you. No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. You humbug! yes, Yes, it's exactly so. I'm a humbug. Oh, you're a very bad man. If you've ever seen The Wizard of Oz, you might remember little Dorothy on her quest to return home to Kansas after a twister picks her up and dumps her in the land of Oz. Her only hope seems to be the great and powerful Oz who gives her a quest to complete with the promise of a return trip home. But when the moment comes, as his voice booms out powerfully, inducing fear in Dorothy and her friends, little Toto trots over and pulls back a curtain, revealing not a great and powerful wizard but a fraud desperately pulling at levers and pushing at buttons, trying to keep up the illusion of power. Uh, Last week, we began this new series, Beyond the Veil, uh, looking at instances in Scripture, where we get to peek into the throne room of heaven and see God in his majesty and power and grandeur. And as we continue this series this morning in Daniel 7, I imagine that the Jewish people can't help but feel a little bit like Dorothy. Wondering if God is like this great and powerful Oz. Wondering if he really is great and powerful, if he is a desperate fraud, fraud, playing with the illusion of power, saying, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Uh, By the time that we come to Daniel's story, we see quite a change from where we were last week in Isaiah. We saw some of the themes of Isaiah playing out uh, as he predicted what we see now happening in Daniel. By this time, the Jews aren't in Jerusalem, uh, and it seems like God has stepped away from his throne. Because of their sin, because of their idolatry, the Jews are taken captive by Babylon. Uh, Their policy is one to deport captives to other lands, to disperse them around, It was kind of the idea that they're less likely to fight for a land not their own. And so to put down any kind of rebellions or revolutions, they take their captors and they disperse them all over the world. And it's in this situation that Daniel finds himself taken as one of these captives as a young man, maybe even a teenager. But because of his wisdom and and the godly living that he is, uh, the godly way of life that he is living, he has found favor in the eyes of not just God, but the earthly kings as well. And it's in this moment that everything seems wrong for the Jews. Daniel, despite his godly living and despite living the way God wants him to, finds himself in situations of tumult and chaos as the world around him wages a war. And so, in the midst of this, Daniel sees a vision. And he finds this vision of God seated on his throne. And in that moment, he's being told that everything will be made right. What we read this morning seems weird and otherworldly, to borrow another phrase from the Wizard of Oz of lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. But we'll take some time to unpack Daniel's vision and see how God is at work, even when it seems like he is not. We read this morning in Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. He says, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given an authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there was before me another horn, a little one, which came up among them and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. It's not long as we read into this that we see Daniel's vision is really more accurately Daniel's nightmare. But to understand this vision, we really have to understand how the ancient world would have understood dreams to begin with. For us, dreams are just kind of a oftentimes random firing of our subconscious, the processing of our mind as we sleep of the days of events and weird things come out. When we dream, we think maybe I had bad Mexican food. But for them, this was a vision from God meant to be acted on. These aren't just four random animals, they're actually four great kingdoms that Daniel is foreseeing that will rise upon the earth. Even in the interpretation of this in verse 17, it says the four beasts are the four kingdoms that will rise to the earth. We see this. It's not hard for us to imagine this connection between kingdoms and animals. All I have to, you, to say to you is bald eagle, and you understand a little bit of this. And so I want to briefly unpack this vision this morning in order to see God in Daniel's vision, to see who God is and what he's trying to communicate. But to see that, we have to understand first the backdrop. Daniel, like I said, would have been kidnapped, essentially, as a teenager and taken to a land not his own. And he's chosen to live a life that honors God despite his circumstances, despite the opportunities to compromise and the culture around him. And you would think that God would honor this. And I think he does. But I also have to think about how Daniel understood this. Here's a young man who has lived his life under pagan oppression. And lived his life under foreign kings, under situations where he's continually called to compromise his beliefs and his values. And he receives a vision in the midst of this, not of the promise of Israel's future good fortune, but even more of a tumultuous upheaval. Even more change and chaos to come. We see his first vision is of a lion. Uh, this would have been representing the Babylonian Empire. Because of Israel's idolatry and arrogance, Babylon was used by God to take the Israelites into captivity. Uh, of course, the Jews thought that they had nothing to fear. You know, God would never let Jerusalem fall. We have the temple, we have the covenant. Like we're, we're like God's hometown. And yet, in the midst of this, they've neglected their end of the covenant. They've promised to be faithful to God as their only God, but continue to worship idols, continue to fall short. And giving warning, having been given warning after warning to turn back or be destroyed, they don't turn back. And so King Nebuchadnezzar comes and we're told about his conquest, how he destroys the walls of Jerusalem. He kills the men, women, and children. He slays the priests in the temple. He carries off the temple treasures, demolishes the temple itself, and sets fire to the city, taking everyone except the poorest of the poor into captivity. But in the midst of this, God will send his prophets to assure the people that his love for them remains. And because of this, he will not abandon his people. And so he gives the promise that after 70 years, Babylon will pay for its wickedness. By the time this comes to Daniel, this vision uh, provides hope for him. He says the wings of this kingdom will be torn off. And by the time of Daniel, Babylon's wings are all but torn off. Belshazzar, the king that we read about this morning, will be the last king of Babylon. But as the lion fades from sight, Daniel's confronted with another beast, this bear, uh, the Persian Empire. God will anoint this other king named Cyrus to uh, be a shepherd for the people of Israel, though he's a king of Persia. Because Cyrus had a different way of dealing with these situations, that rather than taking the people out of their homeland, they decided to put them where they came from. It's easier to dominate your subjects if they're allowed to live where they're happy and practice their own religion. If they're not oppressed, they won't rebel, As they're thinking. And so Cyrus is hailed as the savior of the Jews. They once again return to the Promised Land and rebuild Jerusalem, but that kingdom too will be replaced. This is the vision that Daniel sees: is a leopard, the Greek Empire emerging from this would be Alexander the Great, tired of Persian rule. Alexander would raise up this united Greek nation to conquer Persia at the age of just twenty-one. I'm 34, and I can't keep, a much, keep track of my keys half the time. And yet at 21, Alexander sets out and defeats the world's superpower. And he does it. He, he conquers Persia, and he sets up his own kingdom. And not only does he defeat Persia, but he begins a 12-year campaign in which he will capture most of the known world. And just when he seems to be near unstoppable, he unexpectedly dies of a fever at the age of 33. And he's unable to consolidate his kingdom before his death. I think this is part of the reason that we see this image of a leopard for him. Characterized by yes, power and strength, but also its swiftness. But then Daniel sees this fourth beast. With the passing of Alexander emerges the most fearsome beast of all. He doesn't even have a name for it. This being the Roman Empire. It would be like nothing the world had ever seen before. Yes, Alexander the Great had conquered the world, but Rome took control and consolidated all of that. A legacy of nearly 2,100 years. 1,000 of those as an unstoppable military force. Never before in the history of the world had an empire been so well-governed, militaristic, connected, and fierce. This is, of course, the kingdom that we see, the empire that we see at the time of the New Testament. And I tell you all of this, not to, to fill this space or to make myself seem more knowledgeable, but to impart on you the small fraction of how Daniel and the Jews would have understood such a vision. We see zoo animals, they see death and destruction. They see constant upheaval at the lands of foreign oppressors. For us, this is kind of unknown, largely, unfelt, but we've we've got a taste of that in recent years, last few years, for the first time in eight decades, as a foreign country, Russia, invaded another country with the goal of conquest. Even more recently, the continuing conflict between modern day Israel and Palestine. But even still, for the most part, we are kind of isolated from this kind of conflict. I mean, of course, we feel empathy and we pray for them and maybe we feel some like economic impacts, but we don't generally have to worry about constant conquest and territorial war. There's no kings coming to pillage the White House, no foreign nation pushing impossible taxes we don't have to worry about lying down in bed one night only to wake up to a different government with different rules and different sets of rulers. But that's the reality for Daniel and the Jewish people. That they're handed from nation to nation, struggling to survive in the midst of this conquest and oppression. Daniel tells us that all four of these beasts came out of the sea, the churning sea. Israel was not a seafaring people. They were never a nation that took to boats. For them, the sea represented great uncertainty. The land was safe, the land was secure, but the sea was dark and mysterious and dangerous. For the Jewish people, the sea was a common image for chaos and disorder. And so we have these kingdoms rising out of the sea, rising out of this chaos and uncertainty. Those that would conquer the world several times over while the Jews are passed from nation to nation, ruler to ruler. And so Daniel has this vision And it's a vision that isn't too far from fulfillment for him. In which the Jews, the chosen people of God, are shuttled from Babylon to Persia, to Greece, to Rome. And all the while, they've got to be saying, God, where are you? In the midst of the hardship and the suffering and the struggle, in the midst of the power of these worldly forces, where are you? Won't you remember your people? But Daniel's vision doesn't end with savage beasts. Instead, he gets to see beyond the veil to observe not a humbug wizard desperately trying to convey the illusion of power. No, he sees the sovereign God of the universe who holds all things together even when they look bleak. He continues in verse 9. He says, As I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the little horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. We again come to the, another vision of the all-powerful God seated on his throne. This image of his supreme authority. For Daniel, for the Jews, for these four once fearsome beasts suddenly become much more manageable. The lion is declawed, the bear is caught in a snare, the liar, leopard is poached, the beast is thrown into a blazing fire. And all of these things that seemed once so powerful crumbled to nothing in front of God. I remember as a kid uh, with my brother, we had tons of baseball cards, and most of them were of, were of no value. And so we'd make card houses all the time, and multiple stories, and even upstairs, and as many complexes as we could. But all it took in those instances, if you ever built a house of cards, one unste- unsteady movement, one stray breath, and the whole thing would collapse. And this is what Daniel is communicating with this appearance of God on his thrones, that nations are weak and earthly kingdoms are fragile. But God, the ancient of days, is the eternal, pure, majestic judge of the universe who governs all nations. David presents this kind of fourfold picture of the one who sits on the true throne. He says that God is eternal. He describes him as the ancient of days. The message paraphrase calls him the Old One. The beasts may enjoy their earthly reigns for a couple hundred of years, but the One on the throne knows no time, no beginning, no end. He simply is. In fact, when Moses meets God in that burning bush and he says, "Who shall I say sent me? Who are you?" God simply says, "I am." He is the One who has created and orchestrated and known everything. He is eternal. We also see God as pure. Daniel tells us that his clothing is as white as snow. The hair of his head is white like wool. And in comparison, we see these deformed beasts, these winged lions and this bear with one side bigger than the other, a four-headed leopard, this ten-horned, iron-teethed beast compared to a perfect and pure God. We see that God is majestic. As he is seated high and exalted upon his throne. While thousands and thousands of ministering spirits surround him and 10,000 times 10,000 worship before him. But I think most importantly from Daniel's perspective, we see that God is judge. It says his throne is flaming with fire. There's a river of fire flowing from it. Fire was this image of agent of purification and judgment, of destruction. We see him say the court was seated and the books were open. God is seated as the judge of the nations. The nations who have oppressed his people. That God in his sovereignty will pass judgment on those who persecute his followers. And it's here that we find another message of the throne. Last week in Isaiah's vision we saw that the throne calls us to go. And this morning we see that the throne calls us to have peace. Peace and knowing that God stands as arbiter and sustainer of the universe peace and knowing that the kingdoms of this world, no matter what they bring now, will ultimately come to nothing in the face of the power of our God. There's a reason that you didn't wake up this morning and slip on your robe and slippers to go get your newspaper and read the Babylonian Times. There's a reason that you don't eat breakfast over the Persian Post or the Grecian Gazette or the Roman Report. See, when evil rises and good things pass, even the throne then calls us to have peace. Nations will rise and fall. Given enough time, you don't want me to say this, but America has risen and it will fall. Jobs and careers will rise and fall. Wealth and fortunes will rise and fall. Isaiah in chapter 40, verse 8 says The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And the temptation for us is to, in the midst of difficulty and chaos, is to lean even harder into these worldly systems. To throw ourselves into our our hope and all the politics around us. And I'm not saying that politics are a bad thing. I'm not saying that government is a bad thing. But placing our hope in worldly systems that will ultimately crumble and cave will not lead us any closer to God. The throne calls us to have peace because we belong to a kingdom that will never fall because of the power of our king. Daniel concludes in verse 13, he says, In my vision and I, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. As Daniel's vision concludes, he he looks and he sees one like a son of man. In other words, one in appearance human approaching the throne of God. And you have to wonder, one who looks like a human but approaches God, he's able to do so because of his authority, who could this be talking about? The reality is that David or is that Daniel, in the midst of the vision of these worldly systems, gets a picture of Jesus. The number one title that Jesus liked to use for himself was Son of Man. In fact, he used this title over 75 times in the Gospels. And growing up, I always thought that Jesus used this as like, you know, there's Son of God and Son of Man. One emphasizes His divinity. One emphasizes His humanity. But what Jesus is referencing is this chapter. Every time He calls Himself the Son of Man, He is pointing to His kingdom. It is of a different kind. Not a kingdom of power-grabbing, but of power-giving. Not a kingdom that is predicated on force and coercion and conquest but one of love and grace and mercy. He is a king who seeks his people's deliverance. Jesus says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He is a king who suffers our death and is vindicated. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is a king who is exalted. And granted universal sovereignty. He says, "From now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. The throne calls us to have peace, because the one seated on the throne is the king of peace and the giver of peace. And in the midst of all of these worldly systems, and the frustrations that we have with who's in power and what parties reigning and what parties in this branch of the government? and the ways that we fret because of elections we look at this and we see the king of peace when it seems like things just aren't working out i want you to remember the throne calls us to have peace or when the worries of an unstable economy threatens your security even then the throne calls us to have peace when your marriage is in one of its valleys and it seems like things will never get better. The throne calls us to have peace. When there's more month at the end of the money and the bills are piling up and the future seems uncertain, the throne calls us to have peace. And when it seems like the kingdoms of this world whatever they might be are rising up around you and filling you with fear we must remember that we belong to a kingdom that will never end. And that the king on the throne calls us to have peace because he is peace. And he has purchased our peace with God through his own blood. But the challenge this morning is that you can only be a part of that kind of kingdom when you accept its king. And unlike the kingdoms of this world, this king will not capture your loyalty by force. And he will not intimidate you into allegiance. Now, that is not to say that you get to choose whether or not he is the king. He is the king, whether we like it or not. He is and always will be the king. The question is will you recognize his authority? Will you accept his kingship? Or continue to put your trust in some other system that will ultimately fail? This morning, I want to extend to you an opportunity to come before that king on bended knee. To say, I'm tired of trusting in the wrong kingdoms. And I'm in need of peace. The peace that Jesus brings is, yes, peace in the midst of the chaos of this world. But it's also peace with his Father. And no longer is the wrath of sin poured out on us because it was poured out on him. And He died in our place and for our peace with His Father, with God. And was raised to new life that we might have the same hope. The opportunity is to come on bended knee. Because the issue is settled on which king will continue to stand when others fall. The question that you have to answer is whether or not you want to be standing with Him. Let's pray. God as we come before you this morning we look around at our world we listen to the news and we read and we see what's going on and we just feel this chaos this burden maybe it's insecurity maybe it's fear maybe it's just heartache at what others are having to deal with but even in this God we find peace and knowing that these are not new problems and they do not catch you by surprise And that God, for whatever reason, sovereign as you are, you allow these things to happen. And we trust in you, we trust in your kingdom in the midst of all this. God, especially as we continue to gear up toward elections and changes, we get so passionate about our parties, our loyalties. God, I pray that you'd help us to keep our focus in the right place. That yes, you have ordained governments to carry out works on this world and we're not against that. But God, I pray that you would remind us where we place our hope. God, I pray that you would give us peace in the midst of the chaos because we know that you are a king who sits on an everlasting throne and has established an eternal kingdom that we get to be a part of because of what Jesus has done for us. I pray that we would bend our knees to you, our King. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.